If you would, open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 10. I'll remind you, too, that these 404 verses in Revelation contain over 800 allusions to the Old Testament. Revelation is a very Old Testament book in its feeling. It feels like a lot of Old Testament books, and we see a lot of things surfacing in Revelation that obviously were begun way back in the Old Testament. And so when we encounter something in Revelation that we need help making sense of, we can usually turn back to the Old Testament and get some insight onto things in Revelation. And so we'll see actually a lot of that this morning as we venture into chapter 10. The heptatic structure of Revelation, I want, you to, I want to remind you of this because we're entering into another one of these parentheses. And we've got a little graphic to help illustrate that for you. We've noted already that the book of Revelation follows this outline of sevens. You have your seven seals, seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. For instance, six of the seal judgments unfold, and then we have this brief parenthesis, a little pause in chapter 7, and we get details into the 144,000, into the martyred uh, saints, and then we come back into the storyline, and we finish with the seventh seal. We'll see that happen again with the trumpets. We just came through the first six trumpets. In chapter 10, we're entering into a parenthesis that will last actually several chapters this time. And then we'll see the seventh trumpet sound. And then the seventh trumpet will bring about the seven angels who will pour out the bowls of the wrath of God. And those will be the bowl judgments. So we see Revelation following this pattern of seven. And I point that out, especially this morning, just to make sure that we realize that these next few chapters we'll look at are giving us details about the period that just took place, the trumpet judgments. We are seeing little glimpses into that time period. And that time period is the second quarter of the seven-year tribulation period. The tribulation is broken up into two three-and-a-half-year periods. The seal judgments and the trumpet judgments occur in the first half, that first three and a half years, and then the bowl judgments will span the last three and a half years of the tribulation. And that last three and a half years is the period that Jesus calls the great tribulation. And so we want to get those terms straight. The tribulation is seven years. The great tribulation specifically is the last three and a half years. In chapter 10, we'll see this mighty angel whose identity is the subject of some discussion. Some say it's Christ, and others say that it's just a mighty angel. And we'll look at that in fairly good detail. I have my opinions about who it is, but there aren't any major doctrinal problems that are caused by going either way. I do want to also make that clear. There's not a problem, whichever way you take this person to be. 
We'll also see these seven thunders, which utter words that John is commanded to seal up, to not write down. John did a good job at keeping this secret. We'll see that this little book is handed to John, and this little book is something that the angel here is holding in his hand. And many believe that this little book is the same scroll that Jesus just finished breaking the seals open on. You know, the seal judgments, those seals were broken off one by one to unveil this scroll, which was the title deed to the earth. Some think this is that same scroll. And if it did, that makes this little book the title deed to the earth. Others think this book contains the prophecies of Revelation. It is, in effect, a book of prophecy. And we'll also look at that. John is told to digest, to take and eat this book. And that's an interesting phrase, and we'll see more on that. Let's start by reading the first seven verses in chapter 10. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. And a rainbow was on his head, his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. The angel whom I saw, standing on the sea and on the land, raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished, as he declared to his servants the prophets. First seven verses of chapter 10. Now, this angel, the mighty angel, is the one whose identity has been disputed. Some see this as an appearance of Jesus Christ himself, and others see this as just a mighty angel. And those who think that this is Christ will point out and correctly point out that the physical description of this angel echoes a lot of the same things. Even back in the beginning of Revelation, Christ is described in much the same way. And that's a good point. And I've got a list that we'll throw up on the screen that will help to just get you all these references. And we'll leave that up for a while in case you want to write those down. But we can see most of these in chapter 1 of Revelation. The first descriptor is clouds. He was clothed with a cloud. And if we look in Revelation 1.7, it says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. The second description is rainbow. And a rainbow was on his head. Back in Revelation 4, verse 3, 
It says, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. A rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun. Revelation 1.16. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance, his face, was like the sun shining in its strength. His feet were like pillars of fire. Revelation 1.15. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And the picture there is molten brass, heated up to very, very high temperatures. His feet were like pillars of fire. And a lion, as when a lion roars, John describes his voice. Revelation 5, 5. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, Jesus often appeared in the Old Testament as an angel of the Lord. We see this in Exodus 3, Judges 2, Judges 6, and 2 Samuel 24. These are all what we would call Christophanies, or appearances of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament before his incarnation. Also, if you look ahead to Revelation 11, very next chapter, John writes that he was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God. We can pretty safely assume that the angel who is in chapter 11 is the same angel John deals with in chapter 10. There were no chapter breaks when he was writing this. He's just writing down what he saw. The story continues very seamlessly into chapter 11. So it makes sense that that chapter 11's angel is the same mighty angel that John's dealing with here. In verse 3 of chapter 11, this angel tells John, I will give power to my two witnesses. That's an interesting wording. Jesus could certainly be saying that. So if you want to think that this is Jesus, I think you stand on solid ground. But if this refers to Jesus as an angel, it's the only instance in the book of Revelation where Jesus is referred to as an angel. And further, it would be the only reference in the New Testament where Jesus is described as being an angel. Many times in the Old Testament, but he is not described as an angel after the incarnation, anywhere in the New Testament. Unless, of course, this is a reference to that. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. I, for one, am glad that we see an angel coming down and not coming up this time. We've seen plenty of things coming up, but it's nice to have one coming down. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven. And if you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about two Greek words that are both translated 
in our language as another. We have allos and heteros. The word used in this verse one for another is allos, meaning another of the same kind. Heteros would mean another of a different kind. We're working with allos here. And considering that we've been seeing angels working throughout the book of Revelation in different capacities, it would make sense that Allos is comparing those other angels to this angel and saying that there's another angel of the same sort that we've been seeing here. That would point to this not being Christ. The difference there would be the difference of creator and of creation. And that is a stark contrast. So saying that it's another angel of the same kind calls to question. And we'll come to another reason that some people don't think this angel is Christ in verse 5, but we'll save that. And although there is some discussion and some disagreement as to who this is, there aren't really hard and fast doctrinal lines that we're crossing either way. And there's actually some speculation that this could either be the angel Gabriel or Michael, the archangel. Gabriel's name means strength of God, and he is always seen on mission to announce the Messiah. And that's in both the Old and New Testaments. Michael's name means who is like God which is interesting considering that this angel shares some physical characteristics with Jesus. Michael is the only archangel, and we encounter him in Daniel 10, 13, Daniel 12, 1, and Jude 9. And those are some very interesting passages to look into. So you can build a case for either of these two angels, But again, this exists only in the realm of speculation. He had a little book open in his hand. Regardless of the specific identity of this angel, we know that he's obviously very powerful. And verse 2 says that he had a little book open in his hand. The word for little book is translated from the diminutive form of the Greek biblos. This little book would have been a scroll. It wouldn't have been a codex like we have today with pages, but it would have been a scroll. And it could be that this scroll is the same one that Jesus broke the seals on. If that's the case, then this scroll is the title deed to the earth. And there are some very big implications to that. The instructions and requirements for its opening would have been written on the outside of this scroll. And more importantly, Jesus would have fulfilled all of those requirements necessary for its opening. And so we see here the book is already opened. It's not sealed up any longer. And we'll see that it is now passed from the hands of Jesus to this angel And in a few verses, it will be passed to the hands of John. There's also the view that this book contains the record 
of the prophecies of Revelation. And John would be entrusted with these prophecies. This effectively means that the rest of the book of Revelation is written on this scroll that's handed to John. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. This mostly tells us two fairly important things. One, this angel seems to appear to John as being very large. If he can set one foot on the sea, one on the land, he's a big dude. More importantly, John is now on earth to receive this piece of his revelation. He was previously in heaven witnessing the events of the tribulation unfold on earth. He is now, it seems, transported back to earth to receive this vision of the mighty angel in the local book. And the placement of this angel's feet also seems to signify to us that he holds a place of authority over both the sea and the land, the whole earth. He's placed himself over it, so to speak. This whole passage we're looking at this morning seems to echo Daniel 12. And one contrast we can bring out especially. In Daniel 12, Daniel receives his prophecy from what is eventually three angels. One stands on each side of the riverbank, and one was above the water. So you have one on one bank of the river, one on the other bank, and one above the water. In Revelation 10, this mighty angel stands with one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. And this seems to support the idea that this little book in the angel's hand is the title deed to the earth. At this point in Revelation, the requirements to claim the earth as Christ's possession have already been met, which one, allow the book to be open, as it clearly is from verse 2, and two, the completion of these requirements would grant the earth to Christ as his purchased possession. And this angel acting as either an emissary of Christ or being Christ himself could claim his possession. Um, interesting note that buying and taking possession of to the ancient Hebrews were two different things. Usually when we make a transaction, we lump both of those parts of it into one. We say, I went to the store and I bought milk. And that tells us that we went to the store, we purchased milk, and we also took possession of it. To the ancient Hebrews, those were separate transactions. You bought something and then you took possession of it. And so clearly, the title deed to the earth was purchased with the blood of Christ. But it has not yet, in our timeline, been taken possession of. Those are two different things. The angel standing on both the sea and the land seemed to point to the fact that Christ has authority now over the earth. The God of this world is Satan. Satan currently holds principalities, powers, 
kings of the world under his sway. And he is running the show right now. That will not always be the case. Verse 3, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. I'm sure that, you know, this is deafening when this mighty angel cries out. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. Ironically, there are volumes written of pure speculation as to what these seven thunders could be saying. God tells John, hey, don't write this down. And then everybody now wants to write about it. That's irony. But obviously, God doesn't want us to know what they said, at least not yet. And I think that we will hear them when this event comes down our timeline, and then we'll know what they said. And I bet you will know then why God didn't want us to know that now. It really seems to me like it would be a waste of time trying to figure something out that God didn't want us to know. Why even bother? There is so much in Scripture that God does want us to know. There's so much that he's made plain to us, and we'd be better off focusing on those things. It's funny that everybody wants to poke their noses into something that God doesn't want them knowing. Um, But we need to get our noses in what he does want us to know. Fewer people want to get into the things that God wants to make plain to them. And look, John did a great job of keeping this under wraps. This secret that was entrusted to him, he really did seal it up. And as far as we know, he's the only person who ever knew what these thunders uttered. And unfortunately, much of the gossip in the church, and I'm speaking very generally here, of course, most of the gossip starts as something entrusted to one individual under sort of a covenant of privacy. And then they go and talk to a friend and say, oh, I'm not really supposed to tell you this, but as long as you don't tell anyone else, it should be fine. And this prayer request or something or another gets passed around (coughs) everybody, and uh, it's thinly veiled disguised as a prayer request, but we all know that that's really gossip. So don't be that guy or girl that uses prayer as a vehicle for gossip. We would be wise to take notes from John here and seal up the things that are entrusted to us. Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. Now, although there is some mystery to what the thunders said. And that can be frustrating to those of us that just want to figure everything out. Now, I'm usually the type of person that just wants to understand something, to know what's going on. And mystery can be frustrating, but 
I actually find this rather exciting because this means that God has stored up some things to show us later. He's not showing us yet, but they're being stored up for later. We haven't yet seen everything that he has in store for us. And that's exciting because even what we do know about is just amazing. And we don't even know the half of it. I believe that we will be learning of his love and who he is for eternity. Treasures are stored up for us. And that is exciting. Verse 5, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants, the prophets. That there should be delay no longer. There's a strong allusion to Daniel 12 again in these two verses, verses 5 and 6. These verses are, in effect, the completion of what we see started in Daniel 12, and truthfully started before Daniel 12, but pointed out in Daniel 12. And there, Daniel is receiving a prophecy that speaks of the tribulation. In verse 4, he's told by the angels delivering this message to, quote, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. This seems to go along with the tune of verse 4 in our passage this morning when John heard the voice from heaven telling him, quote, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. Then in Daniel 12, 7, the angel above the water lifted up his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. And this actually points to the fulfillment of the mystery of God. And we are seeing through John's eyes in chapter 10, the unfolding of this remarkable time in verses 5 through 7. Those things that Daniel wrote down aren't sealed up anymore. And we have a greater understanding now, this morning, than we ever have in the past. Daniel was told to seal up those things till the time of the end. That's now. Those things are no longer sealed. And Daniel admits to not understanding them himself. We know more about Daniel's prophecies than he did. Things are coming down to the wire. 
Verse six says, and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it. We see this angel swearing by the creator. And we know from Hebrews that the lesser always swears by the greater. And that's a common thing. If the president is being sworn into office, he doesn't say, I solemnly swear on my pet dog that I will uphold the Constitution. He doesn't do that. He swears on something greater than himself. He puts his hand on a Bible, and he swears by, in effect, the Word of God. Now, we won't touch on that much more with the politicians, and, but the lesser swears by the greater. So as mighty as this angel is, there is one greater. And this would be a bolstering fact to the view that this angel is not actually Christ, but an emissary of Christ, an angel as we would think of it. However, we do know that in certain times in history, God has sworn by himself because there is no greater. So when God wants to seal a promise with an oath, he can swear by himself. Is that what this character is doing? I suppose it's a possibility, but just by the language, it sounds like he's swearing by someone else. It doesn't sound like he's referring to himself. So I'll, I'll leave you with that consideration. And verse 6 ends with an interesting and provocative phrase. He says that there should be delay no longer. So this mighty angel is effectively accounting the final installment of God's eternal plan. Some translations will read, and I think the King James reads this way, that there should be time no longer. The word time is chronos. That's the word it was translated from. And time is a common translation for this word. But translating it as delay here, as the new King James does, helps us better understand what the angel is trying to communicate. There shall be delay no longer. We know that he can't be saying that time as we think of it is finished because there are still things that have to happen in this end time scenario that require specified amounts of time. The last three and a half years of the tribulation. We know that in the middle of those seven years, the abomination of desolation will occur, um, as spoken of by Daniel the prophet. And after that, there will be three and a half years left. That is a defined period of time after this. And so that can't be what it means. The thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennial kingdom, will come after this. That's a defined period of time. So he's not saying that time is going away. He's saying that we've come 
to the end of a period, in effect. There will be delay no longer in God's timeline of carrying out his plan. He's saying that the time has come to wrap up the mystery of God. The end is finally at hand. For thousands of years, God's people have been anticipating the fulfillment of many promises and prophecies. And there's even reference made at the end of verse 7 to the prophets. God declared this mystery to his servants, the prophets, but they didn't get to see the fulfillment of it. But now there is no more delay. This little book is open in the hand of this mighty angel, but was sealed in the day of Daniel. The martyred saints under the altar longed for things to be made right. What were they told? It was said to them that they should rest a little while longer. Just hang on for a little longer. The time is coming, but not yet. That's what they were told. What is this mystery of God? Verse 7 is talking about. I think it's simply the fact that there has been a delay. If God is all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent, why have things drug out this far? Why has he allowed Satan the, the chain that he has? Why doesn't he just imprison Satan now, put an end to all of this mess? Why is there a delay? Why do I have to look around the world and see suffering? Why do my loved ones suffer? Why is he dragging this on? That is the mystery for centuries upon centuries. And really even from the fall of man, we have sought that time when God again takes control of his creation. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. From the beginning, God showed them that sin required death. He took a lamb, killed it, and clothed them with skin. They brought Cain and Abel into the world. Cain hates his brother because his brother's sacrifice was acceptable. His sacrifice was not acceptable. Cain kills his brother. But God blesses Adam and Eve with more children, one of whom Eve names Seth, saying, For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. Is this the one he promised would crush the head of the serpent? Anticipating something to be brought about. Enoch, walking with God, prophesying, Behold, the Lord comes with myriads of his saints to execute judgment, longing to see that in his day. Noah being told that there would be a new beginning once the flood wiped out the wickedness of the world. 
hoping that he would see redemption in his day. Abraham traveling to a foreign land, seeking this city whose builder and maker was God, but never finding it on earth. Moses and Joshua, when the people were coming into the promised land, thinking, finally, this must be the end of everything that God has promised to us, but not yet. David, wanting to build the temple, God tells him, not yet. Your son will build the temple, but I will establish your kingdom forever. The line of David on the throne. Will his son be the one to inherit the kingdom? No, not yet. The prophet seeing great things about the end and longing to witness the consummation of these things. The prophets prophesying things still to come. Things in the end. Mary hearing that she would bear the one that would inherit the throne. Finally, It's here, but not yet. The Jews looking for a Messiah who would throw off the Roman yoke. Looking for a mighty warrior, perhaps riding in on a white horse. But not yet. Rather, a servant rode in on a donkey. Jesus hangs on the cross. The sins of humanity are on his shoulders. The earth quaked. The veil of the temple was torn in two. Jesus granted access to the Father through his blood. Is it time now? After his resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples. He's alive. He's conquered the grave. It's finished. Is it time to see everything put under subjection to him. But Jesus says to them, wait. Wait in Jerusalem until you're endued with the power from on high. Just wait. The Holy Spirit fills them. Ah, is this it? Paul saying that then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, thinking that the Lord was coming in his day. For 2,000 years, the church, considering his coming to be on the horizon, looking forward to that day. And now, how close are we to the end of this delay? certainly closer than any other generation in history. We are closer now to the consummation of these things than ever before. When will God put an end to this suffering, death, and disease? When will he reclaim what is his? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous suffer? Why doesn't he just lock up Satan now? Why is there this delay? That is the mystery of God that has captured the minds of generations. But there is a day in the not-so-distant future when God will say, enough. 
There is no more redemption to accomplish. The program is complete. And in this scene, John is witnessing. The mighty angel is lifting up his right hand to heaven, open book in the other, to swear by the one who created all things that there shall be delay no longer. And we eagerly await that day when the delay is no longer. Let's read through verses 8 through 11. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. I'm sure he said, please, because this guy is big. And he said to me, take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, tongues, nations, and kings. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again. John says in verse 9, So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. I'm sure he used his manners. You wouldn't want to come off as rude to this guy. And he said to me, Take and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. There's a dichotomy here. There's a contrast between the honey and the bitterness. Take and eat it. Have you noticed how often the word of God is compared to some kind of food? Over and over, we see it compared to bread in Matthew 4, 4, to milk in 1 Peter 2, 2, to meat in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 and 2, and to honey in Psalm 119, 103, and Jeremiah 15, 16, just to name a few. And we do need to eat and digest the word of God. And we're commanded plenty of times throughout scripture to do that. And though we can certainly draw some valuable application from relating this little book to the word of God, I think that that is painting with too broad of a stroke um, for really nailing down what this little book is. This little book seems to relate to John's role of prophesying things to come. And this is my take on this passage. I do think that this scroll contains the prophecies of Revelation. Ezekiel 2, verse 9, through chapter 3, verse 3, tells us of the scroll that Ezekiel was given. Now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, 
a scroll of a book was in it. Then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll, and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate it, and it was in my mouth like honey in sweetness. Does that sound like some other passage familiar with? It sounds just like this passage in Revelation. The Old Testament is coming to the rescue. We can see shadows of what's to come. Ezekiel receiving this scroll, told to eat it, and told to prophesy about it. We see the same exact things happening to John. So Ezekiel was given a message of judgment to take to Israel. The words of this prophecy were written on a scroll that he was given and told to eat. And he was instructed to take those words to the house of Israel. In a similar manner, John was given what seems to be a message of judgment to take to the world. The words of his prophecy were written on a scroll that was given to him, and he was instructed to eat. He was also instructed to prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Verse 11. Therefore, It seems plausible that the scroll, this little book that John was given to digest, contains the prophecies of the book of Revelation. And these prophecies are for the rest of the world. Ezekiel's prophecies for Israel, John's for the world. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, My stomach became bitter. It was sweet to the mouth, but bitter to the stomach. There is a sweet message of hope for the children of God contained in Revelation. And as we've moved through Revelation, I hope that I've been able to bring out that sweet hope that we have in Christ. Because we are not appointed to wrath but we're appointed to salvation through Christ. But the other side of that is the judgment on the unbeliever. You have two choices to accept Christ or to reject him. And every single person makes one of those choices. There's a bitter message of destruction for those in the world. And like the word of God, those who hear it have a blessed hope, but also take on the responsibility of speaking truth to an evil world. And that can be difficult and bitter. You know, we've all heard the term bittersweet. That's a common term that we use. One aspect of something can be wonderful and joyful, while another aspect of that same situation can be bitter to us. 
John is experiencing one of these bittersweet moments, realizing the destiny of those who know Jesus and the judgment of those who reject him. He's seeing the bitter and the sweet in these words. And viewing the book as the word of God in general, you know, which I think is a perfectly fine application, but I don't think it's specifically what the book is intended to convey. But viewing the book as the word of God in general, we see that John was instructed to take and eat it. Not to take it home and set it up on his bookshelf to collect dust. He had to take first and consume it. We can engage with the scripture on different levels. And each of these levels have a place in the life of a Christian. But we don't want to become so entrenched in one way of engaging with the scripture that we neglect the others. And I'll, I'll expand on that. We can approach the Bible as a narrative, which it is. It's a story of redemption unfolding throughout the ages. And we can read it this way, as a story. This is a great way to get a sense for the flow and integrated design of all of it and understanding how these pieces fit together to form the story of redemption and how it all centers on the person of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus really is on every page of Scripture. We can also approach the Bible in a more scholarly way, using our minds. It is a collection of 66 books penned by over 40 authors from different walks of life and from different times. And it all fits together in one cohesive package that affirms everything that it says. Um, Chuck Missler uses the illustration of a hologram. You can take a piece of a hologram away and you can still manipulate it and see the entire image. It's a self-correcting system. If you take Revelation 7 out of the Bible, not advocating for that, if you did, you would still have the same message contained in the Bible that you did before. It's self-correcting. Everything that you see in the Bible should be and is confirmed in other places. And that's how we build doctrine. We find something, we think, oh, that's interesting. Let me see if I can confirm that in other places in Scripture. So we can approach the Bible scholarly. We can trace major themes throughout the entire Bible, and we can study it this way. We can also approach the Bible as our guidebook to life, because it is. It contains practical wisdom that we can live by. First, we have to interpret what the original language says in a language that we can understand. Thankfully, that has been done for us. And then we can apply those things to our lives, live by it, obey it, 
one of these ways of engagement should not outweigh the others as to take over. We can't always approach the Bible in a scholarly way, or we will lack certain devotion. We will lack a closeness with Christ, with the scriptures even. We can't always look at it as a narrative because we need that time of close study. We need to find out the historical context. We need to find out what the authors were living through when they wrote what they wrote. We need all of these pieces to fit together. You have to eat and digest it for it to be effective in your life. You can't expect to absorb the information osmotically. You can't place your hand on a Bible and expect it to flow into you. The Holy Spirit has the power to help you recall things that you've read. You might have been in a situation, you were talking to someone about God, about Jesus, and all of a sudden, these scriptures that you had forgotten you knew come to your mind. And you can either rattle them off or you can reference them yourself, make sure that what you're saying is correct. The Holy Spirit is helping you to recall those things. He's speaking through you. But the Holy Spirit can't help you recall something that you never put in there in the first place. You have to eat. And it is a sweet message that is contained in the Bible. But it also comes with responsibility. There is a responsibility that each one of us takes on when we know the truth. We have the obligation to share the truth in love. And we live in a world that doesn't want to hear the truth. They could care less about the truth. They just want what's fast, what's convenient, what feels good in the moment, but not truth. And it can feel bitter. It can feel difficult sometimes to deliver truth with love. But that is what we're called to do. First, we must eat. Then we can fulfill our end of the deal. We can fulfill our obligation, the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. The next week we're here, we'll take a look at chapter 11. And we'll see these two witnesses that God uses for a specific purpose. We'll see them killed. We'll see them resurrected. And we will see people hate them. We'll also see the seventh trumpet sounded. And that will bring about the bowl judgments, as we've seen. But before we get to those bowls, we're going to see some other visions unfold. Some very, very interesting things. Uh, chapter 12 through 14. And we'll be looking at that coming up. So if you would, please bow your heads with me and we'll close in a word of prayer.